0: Hello, falava. You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Susana Coming up,
1: there are people since January of this year that have been living in temporary
2: quarters.
0: The Tongan government falls short on its promises to build more houses. Also,
2: I think it's very important to have observers on board these vessels because they are the eyes and ears of our uh, management agencies and our enforcement agencies. Pacific fisheries observers will be redeployed from next month, and later on... The government's increased the tax-free
3: threshold from the previous 13,000 kina per annum to 20,000 kina.
0: Papua New Guinea introduces its biggest budget in its history. Questions are being asked in the Tonga legislature about the lack of progress in relocating and rehousing the hundreds of people made homeless by the January eruption and tsunami. The Tonga government had committed to building more than 300 houses, creating new villages, rebuilding roads, not only for the most recent victims, but the people still suffering in the wake of devastating cyclones in 2014 and 2018. A correspondent in Tonga, Galafi Moala, says the government had planned to relocate four entire villages wiped out by the tsunami, but he told Don Wiseman that the work to house thousands of victims from Cyclones Ian in 2014 and Gita in 2018 isn't completed.
1: No, unfortunately it hasn't been, and some of the members of parliament or the representatives from those areas where reconstruction needs to take place are beginning to ask questions in parliament, and that has become a subject of conversation
4: in parliament this week. There was an understanding that there was a commitment that uh, this would be done by Christmas.
1: That's correct. One of the realities, of course, Don, is that there are people since January of this year that have been living in uh, temporary quarters, whether it's in the hallway of a church or in tents. They're living there with their families, their children, having been promised that they'll be relocated, there'll be new homes uh, built for them. And that hasn't happened. And that is a great concern.
4: Well, we know that Tonga has been financially struggling for a long time. Is that the only reason that this has happened?
1: Not really, because you have a lot of funds that are flowing in from what is traditionally known as a developing partners. These are funds that have come in to help with the reconstruction. Countries like Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan, and beyond that they have been sending in money to help with Tonga getting back after the natural disasters. And so upon the that basis, that's where the government is feeling confident that they, hey, we will build and it will be finished by such and such a time. And now it's almost a year uh, since the disaster and people are looking at the construction that is going on now and it is nowhere near finished. So questions are being
4: asked. The first of these disasters was more than eight years ago now, Cyclone Ian, which uh, smashed through Haapai particularly, didn't it? So what sort of numbers up there are still waiting to have their situation resolved?
1: Well, the, the situation since January, there were two townships or two significant villages were completely wiped out. So the people from those two villages are waiting to be relocated. They're, they're, they're going to be re- relocated outside of Hapai One uh, village will be relocated into the island of Ewa, which is just off Tongatapu, and the other will be relocated into uh, Tongatapu itself. So for Hapai that's significant because they were all the way back in 2014. They were the the most hit islands with uh, Cyclone Ian, and 70 uh, percent of the Haapai population were affected, about 5,500 people. And then, of course, the cyclone that happened in 2018, Gita, Hapai was also affected. And, of course, the eruption took place took place right on Hapai soil. So they've been uh, deeply affected uh, by these two cyclones before, as well as the eruption in the tsunami. The question is some of the reconstruction that has started for restoring damages from Cyclone Ian, they haven't been even finished, and even from Cyclone Gita. And now there's a third disaster that has happened, and these people have got to be relocated now.
4: So what is the government saying at this point?
1: Well, they're, they're saying that they're doing their best, and uh, construction is going on in the relocation site. They're saying that they were not necessarily promising that the construction will be finished by December. They were only hopeful that something will be done by then. But that's very, very problematic in terms of, of, you know, where it affects people's lives and where they are. The big question, I think, that has been raised is that the 20 construction companies that have been hired to do the construction of about uh, over 300 Houses in these different locations, some of those companies no longer exist. In other words, there are questions concerning how and why they were hired. Some of those companies were companies that just quickly formed in order to bid and, and be hired. A lot of them were quite excited with the millions of dollars that would be available for reconstruction. And so they just got into the bidding. So that's a big issue. And the accusations that have been coming out in Parliament is the fact that some of these companies got into the bidding
4: system through corruption. Through it all, how are the people reacting? Are they philosophical about it, or are they getting angry? I think people
1: are beginning to get angry, particularly the people who are directly affected. I mean, they were thankful that they were alive in the first few months after the disaster. It's getting to a place now where they're beginning to question and ask why people in authority are not fulfilling the promises. Uh, for them. So they're beginning to, their kids are raised in very temporary quarters right now. They're looking at the reconstruction and it's not going to be finished this year. It may go on for another year. So some of the people are beginning to get angry and they are expressing that to their representatives in Parliament and that's why it's being brought up.
0: And still in Tonga, the Czech Republic have set up a consular office in Nukualofa this week. It's a significant milestone for Czech foreign policy, as it's the first Central European country to establish a diplomatic presence on a Pacific Island country. Final Funua has more.
5: The Czech Republic is little known when it comes to foreign relations in the Pacific Islands, but that's something the emerging European nation wants to change. On November 30th, Czech ambassador to the Pacific Islands, Thomas Dobb, announced the appointment of an honorary council in Tonga.
2: Your country is a key country
3: in the region, and I am glad that today's Europe and the Pacific countries are finding a way to come together. Europe has now adopted its Indo-Pacific strategy, and the Czech Republic has recently adopted its own Indo-Pacific strategy too. So we have concrete plans for cooperation, and we have a number of meetings planned as soon as the honorary consulate is open.
5: The honorary council, local businesswoman Rabina Nakao, said the Czech Republic's ambassador expressed his country's economic interests in a number of meetings with Tongan government officials. Nakao says the Czech Republic is also concerned with the climate crisis. Her role will be in facilitating negotiations and taking care of any Czech nationals stranded in Pacific Island countries.
0: They feel it's very important to establish relationships in the Pacific now and they want to have a better understanding of this region. And, you know, so the areas that they identified the sectors that they identified from the t- priorities for Tonga with was- around environment, there was energy, there was some humanitarian assistance.
5: The United States will also be establishing a diplomatic mission with an embassy yet to be confirmed.
0: The Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission has approved the redeployment of independent fisheries observers in its pro fishery from the 1st of January. Senior Commission executives confirmed the decision on Thursday afternoon midway through the annual meeting, which is being hosted by Vietnam. RNZ Pacific senior journalist Conway Hawkins is in Da Nang and filed this report.
6: Prior to the pandemic, the body, also known as the Pacific tuna Commission, had boasted 100% observer coverage in the fishery, but this dropped to zero in 2020 with the suspension of the program due to the impact of COVID-19. The World Wide Fund for Nature's Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program manager, Baba Cook, is taking part in this year's Commission meeting in Vietnam. He welcomed the decision.
2: I think it's very important to have observers on board these vessels because they are the eyes and ears of our uh, management agencies and our enforcement agencies. So they play an incredibly important role at getting us information that ultimately contributes to good stock assessments, good science, and also monitoring, control, and surveillance of the fleets at sea.
6: It's important to stress that the observers being redeployed from the 1st of January are only returning to purse seine vessels and not long-liners, the other type of fishing vessel the Commission concerns itself with in the Pacific. Unlike the 100% observer coverage achieved on purse seiners, the Commission had struggled to meet its own 5% observer coverage conservation measure pre-COVID. The Executive Director of the Commission, Felipe Teo, said the dynamics are the same now as they were then.
4: The commission has, has already des- decided to uh, lift the suspension decision and impose 100% uh, coverage at the beginning of next year for all personnel. The long line uh, observer coverage is always a difficult one, and that's why the commission is moving very quickly on electronic monitoring, so that at least there is an alternative option to provide the data gaps on a uh, long line.
6: Fishing is still one of the most dangerous occupations on the planet, and an independent observer documenting and reporting on fishing violations committed by a captain and crew is an awkward position at the best of times. Baba Cook said while it's important to get eyes back on the fishery, observers need to be redeployed safely.
2: In this case, you know, safe redeployment means that they're fully vaccinated, that they're fully informed on, on what steps they can take to ensure their safety and security on board the vessel, both with respect to you know their personal safety and interactions with the crew, as well as with the the, uh, the virus COVID-19 itself, uh, but also ensuring that they have the appropriate equipment that's required you know by regulation.
6: The Pacific tuna commission meeting will run into Saturday in Denang. One of the final things to be decided will be the appointment of a new chair for the regional fisheries organization. The outgoing chair, Jung Ri Riley Kim from South Korea, has helped steer the commission through uncharted waters these past four years. She said she's pleased with the overall progress being made in this their first in-person meeting since being hosted by Papua New Guinea in 2019.
0: In Port Moresby, the Commission adopted a resolution on climate change. This year, the Commission agreed to have standing agenda items related to climate change responses, not only in the Scientific Committee, but also in TCC and Northern Committee and the Commission.
6: Some of the other agenda items still before the Commission as it nears the conclusion of this year's meeting include revising its Harvest Strategy Work Plan and a review of its compliance monitoring scheme and management procedure issues for other species such as sharks, seabirds and cetaceans.
0: Papua New Guinea's Treasury Minister Ian Lingstaki announced budgetary support for low-income households as well as a significant tax increase for banks. The country's 2023 budget is the biggest in its history. The 24.5 billion kina, or 6.8 billion US dollars, which includes a deficit of 1.34 billion US dollars, is the biggest in the country's history. Our PNG correspondent Scott Whitehead told Don Wiseman about some of the key elements, starting with a more than 50% increase in the tax free threshold for wage earners.
3: What's happened is that the government's increased the tax-free threshold from the previous 13,000 kina per annum to 20,000 kina. So that group of people, the minimum wage which uh, which stood at 13,000 kina, that threshold's been raised to 20,000 kina. So anybody who's earning 20,000 kina and below gets a lot more take-home pay without taxes. And that affects a large group of people, particularly in manufacturing jobs, you know, the casual, casual employees. And it gives also companies the ability to manoeuvre in terms of employment of large groups of people, you know, semi-skilled, unskilled workers, uh, bringing them into a, a formal setting and paying them better without a tax burden to worry about.
4: There had been talk of uh, the need to do something about the Electoral Commission, particularly to allow it to do things like properly prepare for elections.
3: The Electoral Commission is mentioned in the recurrent budget. I didn't have the benefit of budget books yesterday, so I, I didn't see the specifics. But there's a huge, huge increase in terms of law and order and the judiciary and the magisterial services. Now, that impact directly on the ability of police to exercise their powers during elections and outside of elections as well. So it's a 401 million kina increase, and that's spread out over various sectors. Police in particular have gotten the biggest slice. And with that, they have already put out advertisements for an additional 500 recruits and 60 officer positions, and that number is expected to increase from the current 5,000 that we have right now to about 7,000 7, plus in 2026. Now, that's that's a target, and it appears that there's commitment in the budget and as well as commitment from the rp gc to begin recruiting, uh, and that's, that's already happening. So the other th- significant thing of note is the ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, that's also received funding. Now, in previous budgets, it hasn't received the funding that it needed. It was set up, but it it didn't get the funding. So with this budget, it's received funding for its functions.
4: Now, there's always been controversy about the district funds that MPs get paid directly to spend at their discretion. But now the government has now created a second fund. Uh, And it's supposedly that meant to go into infrastructure, but the MPs again will have full control will they?
3: It's not really the creation of a second fund. It's just the allocations have increased. So it's about 900 million kina uh, this year, next year for district infrastructure. Now that's a continuation of what was done this year, allocated in November last year. So it's just an increase, and yes, there's, there's a considerable amount of political discretion over those funds, and that's always a source of controversy for many of the frontline workers who really need to be implementing. But you have the politician also in charge of influencing where the funds go.
4: The government's throwing a fair bit of money around. It's still talking about a substantial deficit, but a smaller deficit than last year. So it's clearly thinking it's going to be earning uh, a significantly larger amount of money than last year. Where's that going to come from?
3: Yeah, Don, the Treasury yielding stock is very confident of shrinking the deficit over time now that's hugely ambitious on the part of the government and especially for the treasurer uh, and for next year he's looking at two key areas and one of those one of those areas is the well several key areas actually not two but one of those areas that pops out in front is the 200 million that's coming from an increase in taxes on the banking sector. And and that is a huge, huge increase. And it's, you know, the banks haven't said anything yet. The opposition has also yet to respond to that budget. The other area is a a significant increase on log export taxes. And that tax has been increased by 20% on top of a previous tax that was introduced in 2020. They've also cut back on fuel excise. uh, And that particular excise suspension, it's not really a cut, it's just a suspension of the excise for six months. That is expected, according to the Treasurer, to have an impact on the cost of goods and services, you know, going to places like the Highlands to the islands, because one of the biggest costs that impacts on the price of food is the cost of transport in Papua New Guinea.
4: Yes, in a place like New Zealand, of course, nearly everyone uses a car, and the cost of petrol has gone through the roof and diesel, and... In PNG, that's a lot different, isn't it? Because uh, most people are not car owners, are they?
3: You, you have three different groups of people. So you have the urban, urban people who use a lot of vehicles, personal vehicles, and then you have... People in rural areas who depend on the PMV routes, the public motor vehicle routes that link their villages. Now, if, if you take a bag of rice from, say, for example, Lay City and you bring it up to the Highlands, that cost increases by a third. And when it reaches the most rural area in in the in that province, it doubles quadruples and and one example i mean if you go to a rural area where well, the best thing to check is the price of rice a one kilo packet of rice and a can of coke now if you see the can of coke costing two kina in lay and 10 kina in that village you know that cost of transport is really high they're, they're paying more for transport and they're passing on that cost to consumers <laughs>
0: That's Pacific Ways for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. tele manuele